God, you are able. You are able to open our ears. You are open, able to open our eyes. Able to give us receptive and understanding minds. Able to give us willing and obedient hearts and wills. Do these things for us and in us, we pray this morning, as we seek to come under you in the teaching of your word. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, would you kindly take a Bible and turn back to the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians and chapter 3, which was page 1190 in the church Bible. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, Louise read to us uh, verses 6 to 15, and it's page 1190. As you listened to uh, that reading, and as you now perhaps scan that passage, I wonder what one word uh, stands out uh, for you. Is it perhaps that rather alarming word, idle? And are you now expecting possibly a sermon where the preacher says, stop being idle, uh, give yourself a kick up the backside, if that were anatomically possible, and get on and do some work? Um, Well, I'm not going to do that. I don't actually know uh, how many of you uh, would be considered or consider yourselves to be idle. What I do know is that many of you would react by saying, Jonathan, we don't actually need to hear that message. Thank you very much. We're exhausted We're tired, we work very hard, uh, and it's very difficult to juggle all the different responsibilities we have. So I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you to stop being idle. Uh, What I am interested in, however, is how the Apostle Paul handles such a problem in this particular church fellowship, the Christians, the young church that met in the town of Thessalonica. It was uh, a church fellowship that Paul was very pleased with and proud of under God. Uh, At the beginning of both his short letters to the Thessalonians, uh, he thanks God for uh, for various things that he uh, saw happening. The the Thessalonians, yes I can say the word, uh, the the Thessalonians were no... uh, Corinthians, uh, split apart by a number of disagreements and uh, moral and ethical problems. They were not Galatians, who were threatening to come right off the rails with regard to their adherence to the gospel of truth. Uh, Just at a glance at what Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 and verse 3 and following. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love uh, every one of you has for each other is increasing. And so on and so forth. Paul is very pleased with the progress that these Christians have made under God. But you know that there isn't a perfect church on the face of this planet. If you ever find one, I suggest that you keep steer well away from it. Because if you found a perfect church then as soon as either you or I stuck our nose in the door, it would immediately become very imperfect, because we know that we are not uh, perfect Christians by any stretch of the imagination. So even with a church which is full of faith 
and perseverance under persecution and full of the Holy Spirit, as this church was, there will still always be issues and problems to be sorted out, and to be sorted out in a godly and scriptural and wise way. Now, with regard then to the particular problem that Paul identifies here, yes, it is about idleness. He says in verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle. And that's a word that he does mention on several occasions during this passage. Now, I've been trying to uh, imagine uh, uh, from what Paul says here uh, and from other parts of the scripture what might have been going on with, this, with these idle people. And notice, it's only some of them. It was some of the individuals in that church fellowship were idle. I've been looking back, and uh, if you keep your finger in Second Thessalonians, you might look, look, look back with me, about 70 or 80 pages, back to Acts chapter 17, where we read of Paul's visit to Thessalonica. And what happened there, and we get, start to get a sense or some hints as to what kind of place it was and what kinds of people lived there. Acts chapter 17, page 1113, he uh, has arrived in Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue as his custom was, he preaches Jesus, Jesus Christ crucified and risen uh, and Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Some of the Jews were persuaded, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women, but the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. Now, the number of hints there as to the kind of culture that the Thessalonians were living in. It was a culture where there was a range of social groups, Jews, Gentiles, um, God-fearing Greeks, prominent women, and a motley crowd who would meet in the marketplace and who were up for trouble and mischief-making. A range of people, a lot of what we call social stratification, different social groups, different cultural pressures going on there. And I can begin to imagine, with the help of some of the commentators who comment on some of the language that Paul uses here, then I think what we might be looking at here is not simply people who are merely lazy, but a group of people from, as it were, these, this lower social uh, layer who were believers, they were Christians, they'd been converted, but they were picking up some of this uh, behaviour and some of the attitude, and so they would attach themselves to some of the more well-to-do Christians and would be sponging off them. They, They weren't unable to work, they were merely unwilling to work. And they were, uh, if you're familiar with the word, toading up, toading up to to these people. They were the kind of people who might bow and scrape and open the door for them and clean their glasses for them and speak up for them at meetings. I'm on his side in order to get a free meal, in order to get a free lunch. So I think that's the kind of picture that's emerging about these idle people. And it isn't merely laziness, it's a kind of a social pressure. It's the kind of thing that happened in that kind of place, in that kind of age. And these Christians have not yet learnt 
uh, that that's not a good thing to do. It's both discouraging to other Christians and also brings the gospel itself into disrepute. So, any church, even a thriving church like Thessalonica, will need a strategy for dealing with those kinds of problems. And let's look at Paul's strategy here. It's a fourfold strategy. It's a strategy that seeks to deal with such a problem with authority, with affection, with integrity, and with togetherness. Let's look at each of those in turn. Paul seeks to to deal with this kind of problem, first of all, with authority. Do you see the language that he uses throughout the passage, but uh, including in verse 6, where he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you. And he uses repeatedly this language of command, of instruction. It's a quasi-military language. Because, uh, again, the language he's using is the, uh, is, is the language of certain Christians stepping out of line, of not working together uh, with the others. It's a sort of military terminology, and he uses the language, the rather strong language, of command uh, uh, with regard to dealing with this. Uh, For Paul, apostolic authority means speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, with the authority of Jesus Christ. And now, whatever we might say about the role of apostles and prophets in the church today, none of us can speak any further than we're able to speak in the name of Jesus Christ and under the word which God has given us. So we cannot go further than to say, in our authority, thus says the Lord. It stands written. Our ultimate authority is, for us, the word of God written in the Old and New Testaments. But it is an authority, and it's an authority of God himself, Think about it. When God first created the heavens and the earth, did he invite the creation into existence? No, he commanded it into existence. When God thundered from Mount Sinai, did he thunder out the ten suggestions? No, it was the ten commandments. Did Jesus say to his followers, if you love me, consider taking my advice? No, he didn't. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So there is such a thing as operating and dealing with one another under the authority that God has given the church in the teaching of Christ and the apostles and in the teaching of scripture itself. Paul speaks with authority on those grounds, and he'd have the church act under that authority too. That's the first point. But the second is that Paul's strategy for dealing with this problem of idleness in this church is secondly to deal with it with affection. Because Paul's language is not only the language of command, but also the language of brotherly love. 
Do you see right from the beginning in verse 6? He's addressing his fellow Christians as brothers, and he's addressing those who are uh, not, uh, who are um, uh, coming out of line. He addresses those as brothers too in the same verse. And uh, we need to ask ourselves if we are prepared as a church to deal with those who are going astray in terms of attitude or behavior, whether we are able and willing under God to deal with them with affection, with brotherly love. Remember how lovingly our Lord himself dealt with Peter after he had tragically and repeatedly denied that he even knew Jesus. His, his uh, attitude to Peter was not, Peter, you've done wrong, you've let me down badly. His approach to Peter was, Peter, do you love me? How loving that was. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is many things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Friends, do we love one another to help one another to obey God more faithfully and more completely? So that's the second point. Paul would have the church deal with this problem, not only with authority, but also with affection. Um, And uh, just one last point on that, just the last verse of our passage in verse 15. Paul is measured in his approach to this by saying, do not regard this idle person as an enemy, but warn him again as a brother. Now, the third component in Paul's strategy for dealing with this problem is the, is the component of integrity. Paul is speaking with integrity here because he's prepared to put his own example, his own lifestyle on the line and up for inspection here. Do you see in verse, verses 7 and following? For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. And then he goes on to say, we were not idle when we we were there. Even though, he explains, we had the right to be supported financially by the people that we ministered uh, amongst, we waived that right. Um, And we chose to work for a living. And we know that Paul was a tent maker by profession. He believed that Christian workers had the right to be supported financially, verse 9, but he had chosen to waive that right in his own case. And um, uh, he wanted, therefore, people to to not only take notice of his teaching, but also of his manner of life. He is one person who could say, um, I practice what I preach. How many of us, I wonder, could say with Paul... Follow, uh, as he says in a number of places, including 1 Corinthians and chapter 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. How many of us could say that with integrity? And yet the church is crying out for role, positive role models. Young people are crying out for positive role models uh, today. We need, we want, role models of married life. 
role models of raising children, role models for managing our time, for our reading habits, for dealing with conflict, for coping with illness and disability, for being single, for managing our money, for being faithful as Christians at work. Christians need to ask themselves, am I an adequate role model for others, perhaps more younger or less experienced Christians, in some or all of these respects? Older, more experienced Christians, are you prepared for youngsters to use you as a role model and to ask you, how do you manage, how do you cope in your Christian life with this or this or this? Young people, are you prepared to approach older or more experienced Christians and ask them the same question? I can remember many years ago when I was a young Christian seeking out an older member of this congregation I can't actually now remember the content of the conversation, but I do remember it was very helpful to me. I sought out that older Christian to help me as a Christian. I was only a year or two into my Christian faith. I can remember who, exactly who it was, because Joe Day is still sitting here in the front of our congregation. And I also can remember uh, how long ago it was, because Joe asked me at the time, Jonathan, how old are you? And I remember saying to him, Joe, I'm 21. So that makes it 40 years ago that I took myself off to Joe Dade and sought some advice from an older and wiser Christian. Indeed. Amen. So can we, and do we look to one another, to act with integrity, uh, prepared for people to inspect us as examples as well as our teaching and our understanding. And now the fourth component of the way Paul would seek to deal with this problem in Thessalonica is he wants it dealt with with togetherness. And I see that in verse 6 and 14 and following. With togetherness. Uh, In verse 6, he has a command to the others who are not idle and the action that they should take in respect of those who are idle. And also verse 14 and 15, whoever, uh, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him, do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. He wants the others to take some action. You see, Paul did not envisage these problems being dealt with by dictatorial leaders, Uh, dictatorial leaders, he expected the whole church to work together. Because after all, if there were a sponger in that congregation and that person went and knocked on one person's door and said, can can you feed me tonight, please? I can't be bothered to feed myself. Then uh, if those people said, well, no, sorry, not anymore, not this time, he might just go to the next door, bang on their door and say, well, can you? They've just turned me down, but can you? It was from one person to another until he got the meal he wanted, uh, wanted. Whereas if they work together, they will encourage him to actually get off his backside and earn his own keep. Does it seem hard? Well, Paul has already given more gentle warnings to such uh, back in his first epistle. So he's not suddenly doing this out, out, out of the blue. Um, uh, he's, uh, he's simply upping the ante. But are we prepared to work together to help, support, and if need be, correct one another's attitudes and behaviours? That's the question here. 
Uh, Ever since Cain asked the question, am I my brother's keeper, we have continued, unfortunately, to ask the same question. And we are as individualistic in our own Western society as perhaps any society has ever been. We've never seemed to got over that question. But Paul wants us to work together. Do not associate with that idle brother. Stop giving handouts. Take a break from inviting him round for meals. If gentle admonition and positive encouragement don't work, try a little shame. Conclusion. All of this, I think, is about helping one another to resist ungodly and unhelpful cultural pressures that would lead us to ungodly attitudes and behaviours, such as it led to idleness amongst a certain group of people in Paul's day. So the big question in front of us this morning, I think, is this. Are we prepared to swim against the tide of popular opinion and of cultural norms where they conflict with a godly and holy and biblical life? And it's difficult... It's difficult even to perceive these cultural pressures because we are so immersed in them. Consider the, pro- consider the following little ditty. Oh, where is the sea? The fishers cried as they swam the Atlantic waters through. We've heard of the sea and the ocean tide and we long to gaze on its waters blue. Do you get the idea? Just as a fish is so immersed in the sea that he hasn't realised that he is immersed in the sea, so we can be so immersed in our culture that we don't realise just how we are being pushed and shoved and bent and twisted by it. So let me just pick out, as in closing, two examples of where we may need to perceive and resist and help one another to resist cultural pressures. Young people. Just in today's news, there is a new call for a debate to lower the age of consent for, uh, for sex to 15 or even lower. At the same time, uh, uh, girls of, uh, of the age of 15, one-third of girls age of 15 have already experienced sex. Cohabitation, either as a prelude to or in place of marriage, is now the norm, the usual in our culture. If young people are getting married at all, it is now the norm to get married uh, beyond the age of 30. A huge space has developed between the age of about 13 or 14 and 30, where as Christian young people, and as Christian parents, grandparents and friends too, we need to learn what it means to take responsibility for ourselves and for our behaviour and our attitudes in the face of these kinds of cultural pressures and tensions and norms. And then the other example I give is towards the other end of the age, uh, uh, the age range, those approaching or within the years of retirement. 
rather close to the knuckle for me because I retire from my work in about a month's time. So I'm having to think, as a number of you will have had to think or do now need to think, about what does it mean as a Christian for me to have retired from full-time employment. I met uh, a former colleague of mine uh, a a while ago uh, who had retired and who said to me, Jonathan, I have perfected the art of doing nothing. (laughs) Now, isn't that remarkable and isn't that sad? And I've had people say to me very recently who know that I'm about to retire, well, you'll you'll be able to just be able to enjoy yourself now, won't you? Uh, Well, it is true that I will have uh, uh, a new freedom to choose uh, how I spend some of my time, uh, and I still have, uh, uh, thanks be to God, uh, health and uh, some resource in this, I think. Yes, there is the choice and flexibility. Does it mean giving up responsibility when we retire as Christians? Is there any verse in Scripture that tells me at the age of 60 or 62 or 65 I can... um, just put my feet up and have a slippered retirement? Well, no. That's another cultural pressure that we need to consider and, uh, if necessary, resist. As for you, brothers and sisters, Paul says in verse 13, never tire of doing what is right. And that doing what is right will include guiding, supporting, and correcting those of us who may be threatening to get it a little bit wrong. And we do so under God with authority and affection, integrity and togetherness, thus bringing us nearer what a church should really be. Amen.